So, as Christian said, originally, Luke was going to do a whole thing on the Trinity tonight, but uh, you get discount Luke tonight, so sorry. He is sick this evening, and uh, so he, he texted me this morning, and he was like, hey, can you, uh, can you do the Wednesday night service? I was like, sure. So uh, I decided, I couldn't decide what to do. I was thinking, what kind of things would be good to go through? And uh, I love going through either systems of doctrine or whole books uh, at one time. I just love that. And so my three options in my mind were to go through the whole Old Testament in 40 minutes, which it can be done. might be more like 43, 44. But, uh, to go through all of Galatians in 40 minutes or to go through the book of Lamentations in 40 minutes. And uh, I asked a couple of people and everyone said that Lamentations was the winner. And uh, the reason that it's the winner is because when was the last time anyone ever talked about Lamentations? Like, never. Lamentations, I think, is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. Maybe coming after Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon might be the most neglected book in the Bible. But outside of that, Lamentations is up there. And the reason is because we don't really know what to do with it. It's kind of a weird book. It's depressing and really dark and doesn't really offer a whole lot of hope. And also, it's set in a time period that is just so foreign and distant from where we are right now. It doesn't seem super applicable to New Covenant realities uh, for lots of reasons. And so, because of all these things, I think sometimes we just, we don't purposefully ignore it because we love the Bible, but we don't talk about it. But if we really believe that God inspired the words of Scripture, then we are duty-bound to look at everything that he said, at everything that he's revealed. And that includes the book of Lamentations. So as the name implies, uh, the book is all about lament. And uh, lament, if we were just to give a synonym for that, is crying out in grief, right? It's mourning, it's hurting, it's sometimes anger, strife, angstiness because of something that's happened. I think it's important in our era to look at the topic of lament because there is this general sense in evangelical Christianity uh, that Christianity is all about being super, like, hoppy, poppy, happy all the time. And uh, whether or not we believe that this is true, we act like this a lot of times. We act like it is our responsibility to get our act together and show up to church, put a smile on our face, and uh, pretend like everything's okay, even if it's not. And sure, there might be some really tragic event where for a weekend you're kind of allowed a little moment of grief, but we kind of expect everyone to get their act together. Now, I might be overstating the case, but seriously, I think in a lot of churches that really is the expectation for people that lament is kind of pushed off to the side. Grief is kind of shortchanged a little bit, and we like emphasizing the joy of Christianity, and certainly there is joy. Certainly there is peace. But that's not to say there's not grief at times. It's not to say that there's not lament. And so um, there really is a very real and significant place for grief and lament in the Christian church. So open up your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Because the book is poetry, um, we're going to hop around from verse to verse. Uh, there's not like, you know, unlike Romans, which I know you know I love, uh, there's not really like an argument that the author is going through. He's expressing his feelings. He's crying out to God. And so we're going to look at representative verses in each chapter, which communicate some of the themes and points of the book. 
So just by way of introduction, who wrote the book of Lamentations? Well, um, most, uh, the most traditional answer to that is Jeremiah. A lot of people uh, believe that Jeremiah wrote the book after the destruction of Jerusalem, which we'll get to in a little bit. There is some modern disagreement on that. Some people would say that it was not Jeremiah, that perhaps um, it was people a little later than Jeremiah that were trying to put themselves back in the era of uh, you know, Jeremiah's day when, when everything had just been destroyed and trying to recapture that uh, intense feeling. Um, but I don't think that's as likely. I honestly think it was m- probably Jeremiah, just because the language used here, um, I, I just don't think is very distant from the event that happens. Seems like the person who's writing Lamentations experienced the events that they're talking about, didn't just hear about it. So uh, most likely, Jeremiah. The structure of Lamentations is fascinating, and I can't understand it because I don't know Hebrew. But from what I'm told uh, and what I understand, the book is uh, arranged into five separate poetic units. That's the five chapters of Lamentations. And the first four chapters are acrostic poems. Now, if you think back to your third grade you know, poetry classes, you'll remember that an acrostic poem is one that begins where each uh, line begins with a different letter of the alphabet going in order. And that's the structure of Lamentations for the first four chapter. And you'll notice, if you look in English, you're like, the first letter is H in chapter one. That's not A. It's because it's in Hebrew, it's not in English. So our translations lose this. We don't capture this, but it is indeed the case in Hebrew that it is an acrostic. So each chapter kind of stands alone uh, as kind of separate poetic units. And uh, you'll notice that the first two chapters are 22 verses representing the 22 characters of the Hebrew alphabet, one verse for each character. Then we get to chapter three, where there are three verses um, per stanza. I don't remember my poetic terminology. I think stanza is the correct term. Uh, But in each stanza... Uh, it begins with the same Hebrew letter. That's why uh, chapter three is 66 verses. That's three times 22. That's three uh, lines for each Hebrew character. And then uh, chapter four goes back to the style of chapter one and two. And then very interestingly and very purposefully, chapter five of Lamentations is not acrostic. It does not have that theme anymore but it maintains 22 verses, which is the number of the Hebrew alphabet. What that tells us is that this was not just a happenstance, well, look at that, I happened to get 22 lines in this. It was a very intentional literary decision to make the same number of verses, same number of lines, without the same structure as the first four chapters. And uh, I think that the reason this is the case is because even in the structure, the author wanted to communicate a sense of chaos and degradation that he was ending not on a high point because Lamentations doesn't end on a high point. I'll just tell you, the last verse is not a high point for the book. It ends in kind of a dreary, dark spot. And the the structure of the last chapter actually communicates that. Okay, so let's talk about the setting of the writing of this, which is really significant to kind of put ourselves into because it's fascinating. So brief history, we have um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, We have people in uh, Egypt. We have slavery. We have Moses. They go out. They're in the wilderness. And before they enter the promised land, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's this curious chapter where Moses is talking about, hey, uh, what I want you guys to do is once you get into the promised land, 
Some of you are gonna be on one mountain and the others are gonna be on another mountain and you're going to kind of like communicate these blessings and curses of the law back and forth to one another. The reason they were to do this is because it was to remind the people of what would happen if they were faithful to God's covenant and what would happen if they violated God's covenant. Both of them were communicated in this event of them standing on the mountains. And I think it's in the book of Joshua where that actually takes place, uh, where the, the people stand there and they communicate those things. And that was kind of a sign that they bound themselves, Israel bound themselves to the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant. If, if they kept God's law, then they would be rewarded with the blessings. They'd be in the land of promise. They would be, have plenty. They would have peace on all sides. God would dwell in their midst. However, if they violated this covenant, then God would remove those blessings from them. He would annihilate, annihilate their cities. He would cause them to be taken out of the land and go back into slavery, which is where they came from in Egypt. Okay, so... Uh, after that time, they enter the land, you have the judges, and then you get the times of the kings. So you have Saul, then David, then Solomon, and uh, you guys know those stories, I think, probably pretty well. Saul was, eh, not a great king. David was a really good king, minus the whole Bathsheba thing, and then Solomon was kind of half-hearted. Good at the beginning, not so great at the end. After Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, was to inherit the kingdom, right? But uh, because of ultimately David's sin, what happened is that the, the nation of Israel was split into two parts, where Rehoboam took the southern kingdom of Judah, which had a couple tribes in it, including uh, Judah, Benjamin, and uh, Le- Levi, because that was where the temple was, uh, was mostly down there. And then the 10 tribes uh, went to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was ruled by Jeroboam. That was the king of that. And if you trace the histories of both these people, you see it's not really a great trait. It's not a good thing. They don't do well. Uh, The northern kingdom has zero faithful kings in it. There is not a single king of the northern kingdom of Israel who obeyed God's law, was faithful to the covenant. The only one you could kind of say was okay was Jehu, but he's kind of yellow. He's not exactly green. He didn't honor God and everything, but he wasn't as bad as the other guys. So what happens? Well, in the year 722 BC, Assyria comes up and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, takes them down. They're gone, wiped off the map. Well, the southern kingdom fared a little little better, but not great. There were some good and faithful kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, but eventually they also succumbed to idolatry. Um, So, In the year 597, this dude named King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes knocking on uh, Jerusalem's door, kind of sacks the city of Jerusalem. And what he does is he installs a king who was to be loyal to him, King Zedekiah. He's called a vassal king, a servant king to Nebuchadnezzar. But Zedekiah, he had a plan. He was like, guys, Jerusalem, Judah, listen up. I am going to make an alliance with Egypt. And this is going to go really well for us because we're going to stop good old nebs from taking us over and we can be free, right? Well, that didn't go so hot because Egypt was destroyed by Babylon and then it was just them. And they probably were shaking a little bit in their knees at this time because they realized their only ally was gone. They had to defeat the world superpower that was taking over the world by their own little selves. Um, So one by one, you have to imagine this now. You live in the city of Jerusalem. You know that your only ally has been destroyed. 
and the world's most powerful military is coming for you because you've rebelled, because you've turned against the, uh, the king of Babylon. And so one by one, the cities of Judah fall, city by city by city. And you're hearing news every little bit, this city has fallen, it's destroyed. The, nearer, the, the city a little bit closer to you, that's gone, that's gone. And until finally, there was only Jerusalem remaining. The location of the temple, of the king's palace, of the Davidic kingship itself. It was all that remained of all of Israel. The whole land, the whole promised land, the only thing left was Jerusalem. And so Babylon attacked. And did you know that uh, by some metrics, Jerusalem sat under siege for 30 months. It's over two years that Babylon was at the gates um, blockading them from supplies, attacking them, trying to break down their defenses. As Babylon's army came against the city, things progressively got more and more dire. Starving moms boiled their children and ate them for food because there was no food. Idolatry was rampant because the, pe the people cried out to their gods to save them. But in the month of July, in the year 5, uh, what is it, 596 BC? Nope, 586 BC, sorry. Uh, in that month, after a grueling couple years, the walls were breached and Jerusalem fell. And Babylon didn't just kill a couple people and leave. Babylon destroyed the last remaining city in the promised land. They stripped the city of every valuable that remained. The walls, they tore down. The palace was gone. The temple, God's dwelling place on earth, was destroyed. And they carried off the majority of those remaining off to a foreign country, back into slavery. Now, this is the position of the author who's left, writing after, they're left in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is left in Jerusalem after everyone's been carried off. Everything's gone. Everything's literally in flames. There is no city anymore, just a, a you know, flaming pile of ruin. So this faithful Jew who loved Yahweh and sought to honor him wrote this lament that was crying out in agony over everything that he had experienced and everything that had happened to the people. Just practical considerations when we think about this. Think about how many people that you just would know that would be dead, the mass number of people that would be gone and dead. Your entire life is gone, is uprooted. Nothing is the same as it was. There's poverty, there's famine, and the reason is because of the people's sin. In this case, not, even, not Jeremiah's sin. Jeremiah was faithful. Not, it was the people's sin, and yet he was suffering brutally for what had happened. The nation was gone. These were God's chosen people. These are the promises, uh, the promises that God had spoken to the patriarchs. He sp God spoke to Abraham that he was going to give the land to the people, and now they're gone. It's desolate. The sign of God's redemption out of slavery in Egypt was the promised land, and that's gone. To what were they redeemed now? To more slavery? The city was literally called Zion, the city of God's salvation. Where was God's salvation now? It's gone. Jeremiah 7 
verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read a, a couple sections. It says this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust into the place that I gave you into your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So from this, we get that people were saying, guys, this is Jerusalem. The temple of the Lord is here. What's he going to do? What's God going to do? And God's like, you want to know what I'm going to do? <laughs> Look at Shiloh, where, where the tabernacle was when the people first came to the land. Look how well Shiloh's faring. You want to know why? Because of their sin. If I did that to Shiloh, what makes you think I'm not going to do it to you? And by that, he warned him. The king was gone. The king this is really significant because of the Davidic covenant. God made a promise that a king would sit on the throne of Israel for all eternity. That was God's promise. King's gone. Where is God's promise now? But perhaps the biggest blow, not perhaps, the biggest blow was, that the, temp was the temple. The temple being destroyed is so, it's hard for us to even comprehend what that would be like. It would be like if the cross was destroyed and we could no longer be saved by it. That would kind of be the equivalent because for them, the temple was their salvation. How do you atone for your sin? You go to the temple, you offer sacrifices. Where does God dwell? In the temple. Without the temple, how, how do you honor the law? You can't. You don't have the option to. For the temple to be destroyed meant that for Israel, there was no salvation. So what hope is there? And it is in that that we get to the lament. So turn to chapter one. Like I said, I'm gonna go through some representative verses of lament. Chapter one gives us the, this first poem, gives us the perspective of a grieving woman whose name is Lady Zion. And she uh, was unfaithful sexually. She has no one to comfort her and all of her lovers have deserted her. It's kind of the framing for this chapter. So read one verse one because it feels right to start with the first verse, right? Okay, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave lamenting over the state of the city. Now jump to verse four. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. 
All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted and she herself suffers bitterly. This is interesting because um, the roads to Zion were the paths that people would take to go to the festivals. The festivals in the Mosaic law that God instituted both as a remembrance of what God had done and a reminder of what God would do. People were to go up to Jerusalem and worship God in those holidays, those festivals. The roads to Zion mourn. The paths that were once walked on by the faithful people wanting to worship God are, are empty. They mourn. None come to the festival. Verse five, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Why do her enemies prosper? Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. This is significant because the, the author of Lamentations, while lamenting the city, recognizes that this was a just action of God. In the midst of his lament, he's recognizing this is because of us. This is because of our sin. This is not just Babylon got greedy. This is our fault. This is us. God could have saved them, but he didn't. In fact, he gave them, he delivered them into their enemy's hand because her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. We're gonna see a motif of God being the agent of destruction that this all happened because God was the one who did it. Then we have a couple of verses here that uh, recount the sinfulness of Jerusalem generally. We have uh, statements about Jerusalem's filthiness, how she whored herself by going after other gods. It says in verse nine that her uncleanliness was in her skirts. Uh, it's a common thing we see in the prophetic literature to compare uh, unfaithfulness in religion, in worship, to unfaithfulness in marriage or uh, sexual relations, right? That's pretty common in the prophets. Verse 10 says this. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter the, your congregation. Only priests were to minister in the temple. It was a holy place, right? Uh, a place where only a particular part, uh, you know, group of Israel could actually go. Yet Babylon waltzed right in to their most sacred places, and destroyed it. The nations have been in the sanctuary. It feels like a rejection from the Lord. Then we get a couple more verses that talk about the Lord inflicting the people, stunning them, causing their strength to fail, and crushing the mighty men because of his anger. Again, in the perspective of speaking from a woman's perspective as Lady Zion, she's saying, my mighty men, you know, the men who would protect me, the Lord crushed all of them. Verse 16 says this, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Uh, we have the weeping, flowing with tears, both pretty common and laments. Uh, and then this statement, a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. Uh, think about the nature of our own lament when we are grieved by something. Comfort is something that we ache for, whether that's from a, you know, a spouse, whether that's from friends. Even look at Job, in the, uh, Job's tragedy that befalls him. What happens? Well, his friends come 
and they come and they sit there in silence with him and they mourn with him, they grieve with him. The idea of a one walking alongside us in our grief is a, a way to deal with some of the tragedies that befall us. Yet for Jerusalem, no such comforter is found. There is no one to walk with Jerusalem. She has no allies, no friends any longer. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. We see here again him acknowledging that the Lord is in the right, that the Lord is justified in doing what he did because they rebelled against his word. And then there's a cry to, hey, everyone, all you peoples out there, all you nations who are watching, see my suffering, observe what's happening. There's a cry for almost validation by observation. Like, do you, does any, are you seeing what's going on here? Are you, are you seeing this? It seems like this is pretty rotten, right? Some validation is what uh, she's seeking for. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. So in this case, who is Lady Zion addressing? The one who caused her destruction. This is a prayer. Look, O Lord, God, you did this. Do you see Do you see? I'm in distress. I feel nauseous because of what's happened to me. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. So in this, we get a hint of repentance, an acknowledgement of sin, and a crying out to God. God, what, what is this thing that you have done to me? Do you recognize how grieved I am, how much this hurts? Verse 21 They heard my groaning, yet there was no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Here, recognition that uh, the enemies, they're rejoicing. They're happy. They're thrilled. They're laughing. Hey, yeah, finally we got rid of Jerusalem. That's a good thing. Judah, Israel, they're no no longer a problem for us. And so what does, uh, as we're ending this first poem, what, what is the cry? Let them be as I am. So recognition in the previous verse, I have been very rebellious. Now, they've also been rebellious. Do you not see the wickedness of the nation who killed, destroyed me? Judge them as well. Verse 22 says this, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Again, let their deeds, God, be before you. This is a cry for justice. This is a cry for vindication. This is a cry for the Lord to destroy the enemies in in a kind of vengeance for what they have done to Israel. Then that brings us to poem number Two. Poem number two focuses primarily on the wrath of God in destroying Jerusalem. So poem one, the grieving Lady Zion. Poem two, a recognition of the wrath of God. Just 
I'm going to read for you the first line of the first seven verses. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. Make no mistake, this is the doing of the Lord. Now, this is really significant because in the ancient world, when a nation was invaded, uh, and destroyed, the general predominant thought was, oh, well, the nation must have been destroyed because the god of the invading nation was stronger. So Marduk, god of the Babylonians, Marduk must have been stronger than Yahweh. That's why, that's why Israel lost. No, no, no. Make no mistake, Jeremiah writes, the Lord is who's done this. This was not Babylon, chiefly. This is not Babylon's gods, chiefly. This was the Lord's doing. This was from the hand of God himself. Make no mistake about that. For us, we don't think like that, but you can imagine how that would be really significant of a message to communicate in that day. It also raises the, the question of God is, God is pulling no punches towards his people here. He's nailing them down. They're laid out by him. Uh, significant. We'll get around to that in chapter three. Okay, I'm gonna read verses all of verses two through six, because they're just great. They're worth reading. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger, fierce anger, all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins the strongholds and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. It's a reference to his tabernacle, literally booth, his tent, right? He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The imagery of this is striking. These are God's chosen covenant people. These are the people he redeemed from Egypt that he stamped his name on. And, and they're saying, God, you, you've become our enemy. No longer are you our ally. You're hunting us down. You're stalking us. Actually, in the next chapter, it'll say that the Lord is well, like, stalks like a bear. Or something. I, I don't know where it is, but... Uh, the Lord is, is coming against Jerusalem with fury. Verse 11. Ooh, verse 11. Uh, we'll do verse 9 first. Verse 9, sorry. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. Again, a reference to being taken away into exile. Then it says this. The law is no more 
and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Now, why would you say the law is no more? It's not because the law poofed into disexistence. It's because how could the people obey the law? The law is virtually meaningless, practically, for them. There's no city to do worship at. There's no, all the chapters about the city of refuge. Where, what refuge cities are there now? Uh, all, the, all the chapters that talk about l- the land allotments, that, that means nothing. There is no land anymore. All the elements of the law, the festivals and the, the temple worship and the, the sacrifices, on what will they sacrifice? There is no more altar. And then it says, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Now, a lot of people have seen this as a, a reason that this couldn't be Jeremiah because Jeremiah was a prophet who received visions from the Lord, so that would be problematic. But I think that he's talking just poetically. The point is, God has abandoned his people. I don't think he's meaning to say that he has never received anything from the Lord. I think he did. Uh, The point is, God has abandoned them. He doesn't speak to them. He doesn't communicate to them. And we're going to see actually a motif of uh, him talking about false prophets. And this could even be a reference to the false prophets of the people. Okay, now jump to verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. We have weeping, we have puking because of the intensity of the grief that they're experiencing. This is the depths of pain here. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions, They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So in this case, I think prophets is in quotation marks. I don't think these are genuine prophets. Uh, We read in the prophets, especially Jeremiah, that uh, there were a host of prophets who were going to the king and saying, no, 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 king, you're gonna be great. You're gonna be just dandy. Don't worry about it. It's gonna work out okay. Temple's here. It's all gonna be good. And uh, Jeremiah's like, these guys are, are totally lying to you. Things are not going to be okay. In fact, they're going to be worse than okay. They're going to be terrible because of what you've done. And uh, we see actually the um, accusation that these prophets, so-called prophets, have just come up with prophecies in their minds that they attributed to the the Lord saying things that they had just invented in their own minds all over the book of Jeremiah. So here we have the primary uh, problems with these prophets, false and deceptive visions. That means visions that were, one, incorrect, at best, and two, deceptive, intentionally lying to people at worst. Then also they have not exposed your iniquity. If you read the prophets for like two verses, you'll see that the, the number one thing the prophets did was point to the sinfulness of the people. You guys need to repent. Do you see what you're doing? You're breaking the covenant. False prophets don't call people to repentance like that. Not in Israel, at least. Probably not anywhere, but especially not in Israel. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. I think this is a reference to those Deuteronomy curses and blessings that was going down earlier. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm gonna jump on to chapter three at this point, which is the highlight of the book, in my opinion. Interestingly enough, the book of Lamentations forms a kind of pyramid where the peak of the book is actually in the middle. We often think of the climax of something near the end, but in the book of Lamentations, it peaks in the middle. You'll see why in just a second. But uh, chapter three, the third poem, is from the perspective of the man who has seen affliction. We see that in verse one. It literally starts off saying, I am the man who has seen affliction. 
so note again, uh, if you go through this, the language of God is that being the one to actively do this. Verses four through six, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Verses 10 through 12 say this. Oh, here's, here's the verses I was referencing earlier. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. And then verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. That's intense language for something that God has done. I think a lot of times we have a very squishy view of God, um, probably because we live in an era uh, in which God's disposition towards us is one of mercy and grace because of the cross. And amen to that. But we ought not forget, we ought not forget the wrath of the Lord, the anger of the Lord towards sin. Just because we're under grace does not mean that we can discount that the Lord burns in anger against sin, real anger. He is angry about sin. We, we hide under the shadow of the cross. But for those who are not under the shadow of the cross, This kind of anger, this God who did this to his people will not hesitate to do it to those who are not covered in the blood of the lamb. It's notable. Verse 17 and 18 says this, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. No peace is here. Why? Because of God. No happiness. Why? Because of God. No, okay, I just have to pause on that one. God's primary goal in life is is not for your worldly happiness, okay? There is a difference between the satisfaction that we are given and granted as Christians and the worldly happiness, okay? The the joyful, happy, boppy personality is not what God grants us as Christians. He grants us a satisfaction, a joy, a happiness that is far deeper than just the surface happiness. That's why we can lament and we can have joy through tears at the same time. Getting ahead of myself though, just had to note that. All of these are dramatic statements and they're from deep in the soul. Verse 19, okay, here we go. 19 through 27, I'm gonna read. This is the peak. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So just, he always calls to mind these things. But this I call to mind, and therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. In the midst of excruciating suffering, like you and I can hardly imagine, this is what Jeremiah calls to mind. The covenant love of the Lord, the ceaseless mercy of the Lord, and the covenant faithfulness of God. 
When we sing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that's pulled from this. This is where that's from. And it's not just talking about this general God is faithful, he is generally faithful, but it's talking about a very particular kind of faithfulness. The faithfulness being talked about here is faithfulness to his covenant. It's covenant faithfulness. In other words, God keeps his promises. What God promises that he's going to do, he does not break. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, God's promises to us, though related to his promises in the Mosaic Covenant to Israel, are are different because they are not on the basis of our obedience. The problem here, the problem with Israel was their heart. That's what got them into this. It was their sin. You know what God does for us? He gives us a new heart. That's the solution. When we're singing, great is thy faithfulness, God loves us and is faithful to us because of him himself, his work in changing our heart, his work in regenerating us, causing us to be born again, his work in justifying us, his work in sanctifying us, his work in glorifying us. All this are the promises of the new covenant. That's what God is faithful to. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, we're saying, God, you keep your promises. And your promises to us secure our salvation. No matter what happens, you're faithful. You'll keep your promises. That's Jeremiah's hope here. The Lord is literally all Jeremiah's God at this point. What else, what else does he turn to? There is nothing else to turn to in the country for Jeremiah. The Lord's all he's got. So he says, this is what I call to mind. When I, when I can't stop thinking about everything, this is what I dwell on, and therefore I have hope. I dwell on the character and the nature of God. That's what he dwells on. That's where his hope is. Verse 31 through 33 says this, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. He reaffirms that the Lord will not leave Israel in this state forever. God did this, but he will have compassion. Why? Because of his covenant faithfulness. Um, yeah, well, verse 37 through 39 says this, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord had commanded it. In other words, no king stands up and says, hey, I have a new idea. We're going to go attack, attack Israel. No one does that unless the Lord has commanded it. Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? God is the distributor of prosperity. He is also the distributor of calamity. This thing is from the hand of the Lord. How can a man complain about punishment for sins? Is God not a just God? The next several verses then call the people to repentance. They say, let us return to the Lord. Let us test and examine our ways. Um, And again, for the sake of time, we'll we'll skip to chapter four. In chapter four, uh, we're heading back down the peak here. 
uh, we get kind of a comparison between the old Jerusalem, the splendors of the old Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem after the punishment of the Lord. Verses seven through eight say this. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Uh, Verse 10 and 11. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave vent to his wrath and he poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Then we end in verse 22 with this chapter. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is an interesting verse here because it implies the restoration, that the punishment that God gave them will at one point be accomplished. So though the people were taken into exile, Jeremiah recognizes that this is not the end of Israel's story. The Lord has promised that he will restore them And indeed he will. However, he then says, your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. And I think Edom here is a fill-in for the nations. So he's basically saying, our punishment will be accomplished. And after that will come prosperity. But you nations, you who did this to us, you better watch out. Because there will be no forgiveness for you. By forgiveness, I mean no national repentance that will save them from the coming destruction of the Lord. They will certainly be destroyed. Then chapter five, we have this plea that God will have mercy and restore the people. So the first 14 verses recount all of the just miscellaneous problems that are currently in the city. There are orphans. They have no food. They have no water. They're weary. They're in slavery. The women are being raped. The elders are disrespected. Old men no longer gather at the city gates. Young men struggle underneath heavy loads. Just recounting all of these woes. And then in verses 15 through 19, we get this. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures all generations. In other words, we're destroyed, we're broken, but God is not. Just because God's people are toppled because of their sin does not mean the Lord is taken off his throne. God is still on his throne. He reigns forever. And, And if any stable force in the universe can help Jerusalem, it'll be the Lord. And then verse 21 and 22, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And that's the end of the book. The very last verse is restore us unless unless you're still angry at us and have utterly rejected us, in which case don't restore us. What a weird way to end the book of Lamentations. Yet, how also very appropriate in the midst of a book like this. It's an off way to end. It's kind of a cliffhanger, a realization of the weightiness of sin. But of course, 
Though this is the end of Lamentations, this is not the end of the Bible. God did restore Jerusalem. He did bring his people back, but he didn't just stop there. He went way further. He fixed the root of the problem, our sinful heart. The sinfulness and brokenness of all the people in the old covenant pointed to the need for a better covenant, the members of which had renewed hearts that weren't tainted by sin in the same way. This is the promise of the new covenant. And so while Jeremiah ends on an ominous note, our hope is in the faithfulness of the Lord and his promises of salvation. Okay, so how do we, how do we apply a book like this? What do, we, how, what do we pull from this to nourish us as Christians beyond just knowing what it says? Well, one, I think we should understand that there is a very real place for lament in the Christian life. The emotion of Christians is not one-sided. It's not cheap. It's not shallow. Make no mistake. Times of sorrow are going to come for you. They're going to. That's the reality of life. There are things in this life that you will experience that will produce deep wounds, things that are worthy of real lament, times in which the Lord seems to become our enemy. Obviously, the situation's different. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant, and thus what may occur to us is not exactly in the same category. Nonetheless, as Jeremiah writes, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil come? That's a true statement, regardless of what covenant we're under. Providentially, God works all things for our sanctification, and that includes terrible, terrible sufferings. Additionally, we should note that the Lord is not ignorant of our suffering. He's not only aware of it, he has ordained it. So let lament for us cause the following things. One, a recognition and repentance for our sin. When we lament, recognize that the origin of lament is chiefly sin. Repent of your sins. Recognize that. Two, let it remind you of our mortality and our powerlessness. We are but the creation. What can we do? What power have we over anything The Lord is the one who has the power, and so to him we must turn. And so number three, turn to God in our outcry, not just grumbling as the Israelites did in the wilderness, but turning to God in prayer. We lament not as just a a grumbling human thing. We lament to God. Notice the disposition of this. They're addressing God. Lord, what have you done? Why Why have you done this? This is addressing God. Four, I think one, two, three, yeah, four. Hope for the future. A longing for heaven and for glory is a good thing for Christians, and it is never more highlighted than in lament. We, we yearn for a time when our tears will be once for all wiped away by him. We ought to have a right view of our times of great happiness. So when we're in times of great lament, let that Stir you next time you have good, joyful moments to rejoice in those. Don't downplay the joy and and happiness that God gives you in those times. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for sorrow and there's a time for rejoicing. So when those times of rejoicing come, let the contrast between times of mourning and times of rejoicing be great. Rejoice in what the Lord has done. Six, 
remember the blessings of the Lord. And then seven, remember who God is. Lament should drive us to recall who God is. All in all, Lamentations records the feelings of disappointment, betrayal, and even bitterness towards God for all that came upon Jerusalem after Babylon destroyed the city. And the language used, as you saw, is strikingly uncomfortable. It says, he made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry and call out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has made me desolate and has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. All of these things said of God. And you know what? There's no relief in this book. There's no great victory that Jeremiah experienced. In fact, Jeremiah probably died in Egypt after being taken off, after his people like turned on him. Every, Jeremiah's life was devoted to calling the people to repentance. His nation was destroyed, temple was destroyed, his people hated him, and he died away from the promised land. There's no great relief for him, but there is a quiet plea for restoration. As Jeremiah writes, in the midst of his lament, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is mind-boggling when we consider all of these things. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In the middle of the somewhat bleak book, Jeremiah recalls that what, the, what the law had said about God. The very nature and attributes of God is the hope to which Jeremiah clung. And it was not a hope misplaced. Though he died, he clung to that which he should have. And his people were indeed restored. And so that's what we do. We cling to the God who has revealed himself. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9 says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So in lament, cling to who the Lord is Though we may drown in a sea of tragedy, the nature of the Lord is our sure and steady anchor. Jeremiah's hope was not that Jerusalem would suddenly pop back. It's not that they would somehow win the day against Babylon. It wasn't the termination of his pain that he hoped in. It wasn't in the blessing of of comfort that he hoped in. His hope was found in the nature of his God, in his faithfulness and his covenant steadfast love, as should ours be.